Hello and welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a podcast about YA literature, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. All right. So this is our first official entry. Welcome, thousands of fans. <laughs> so many thousands of fans. <laughs> uh, all right. So we're still we're still ironing out the kinks, but we've kind of got a structure that we're going to go with. Yes. There will be kinks forever, probably. But we're hoping that breaking it up between like talking about the book and then talking about the film, like trying to recognize them as separate things and then discussing the adaptation will be kind of a good way of approaching these texts. Yeah, I'm excited. We're going to see how it works. But before we do that, why don't you talk about some news or some updates? What, what's been happening this week for you? Sure. Um, I thought I would uh, bring a couple of books that came in off my holds list this week at the library that I'm pretty excited about that are both books by people of color too. One of the things that Joe and I have been talking a lot about is the fact that focusing on YA adaptations means that there's going to be a lot of books by white writers. So I'm going to use the news segment to bring in some other voices. So I started reading Dear Martin by Nick Stone. I don't know if you know about this one, Joe. The name sounds familiar, but I can't recall. Yeah, they had a big marketing push uh, when it first came out, and it got blurbed by some really big folks, like John Green blurbed it, and also Angie Thomas, who wrote The Hate You Give. Um, It's by Nick Stone, and it's about a young black teenager. He's a super accomplished student. He's headed for Yale. He goes to a private school um, and he's on a scholarship and it's a super white private school. And the book opens with him having this incident where the police think that he is attacking this woman who's actually his girlfriend. And even after the situation is explained to them by the girl's parents, he's held for hours by the police, handcuffed too tight. It's just like a horrible abuse of power situation. And so it really changes like his perspective on what America is. And meanwhile, he's attending this super white school where they have this debate, racism is over, yes or no? And most of the class is like, yes, I know. <laughs> so uh, he starts kind of writing these letters to Martin Luther King Jr. Um, while he's trying to kind of like think out his his feelings about what he's going through and trying to understand his feelings for a girl, obviously, because it's a YA novel. Naturally. <laughs> but it's really good. I'm only a few page, like I'm only a few chapters in, but I'm really enjoying it. And I'm really interested in seeing more and more of these YA novels taking on the Black Lives Matters issues, which is, I mean, what The Hate You Give does so well. And I'm really excited to see the film of that. And then the other book I brought in, I wanted to talk about because Joe and I have been talking a little bit about how classics get adapted for teen audiences uh, and this is a pride and prejudice rewrite called pride by ibby zaboy set in brooklyn and it's a great setup i haven't started reading it yet it just came in off my holds list but it's a great setup because it's sort of like a afro-latino family living in brooklyn and the darcy family moves in across the street and they are wealthy gentrifiers <laughs> interesting yes. okay that's that's a great twist on an old classic right because how many pride and prejudice versions have been done and this is a really interesting way of looking at the darcy's wealth because to be super english scholar nerdy here there's lots of really interesting research that's been done about what austin is really saying with some of her wealthy characters and perhaps maybe a critique of the transatlantic slave trade where all that money what? probably would have been coming from, seriously. So it's really interesting. I'm so excited to read this and get this whole new perspective on 
a really old story. Because the last YA adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that I got really into was the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, mm-hmm. which is like the YouTube series. Yep. And I used to teach it, actually. Like, I'd have students use it in an adaptation exercise. But, you know, it's getting to be a few years old now. It's starting to feel a little bit stale in the way that web series so quickly do. So, yeah. uh, And plus, just, you know, obviously interesting to bring in author of color, characters of color, dealing with a really contemporary issue like gentrification through the story of Pride and Prejudice. I'm super stoked for it. So yeah, that's Pride by Ibiza Boy. What have you brought for us, Joe? What do you have news-wise? Okay, so I I failed the homework assignment because I really only thought about this as we were setting up for <laughs> tonight's episode. <laughs> so what I'm bringing to the table is I'm keeping my eye on a film adaptation. So uh, kind of like The Hate You Give, it's probably one that we'll put in the roster to check out in the future. But it's a film adaptation of a book series uh, called The Mortal Engines by Philip Reeves. And it's being adapted into a major holiday blockbuster, which is being spearheaded, but not directed by Peter Jackson. Uh, But the premise is one that's really got me hooked because it's the dystopian future. Everything's terrible, power, totalitarianism. But it's set in a world where cities are mobile and big cities chase down and eat (laughs) up smaller cities. Seriously? That's amazing. Yes, it's it's highly entertaining. It doesn't come out until December, which who knows when this episode will drop. So maybe that will have already come and gone. But uh, <laughs> essentially, they released a couple of trailers and they're they're doing the thing that I hate the most, which is they're literally putting all the cards on the table and just showing you everything. So no. there are twists, there are false identities, there's confusion, there's all sorts of exciting, unexpected things that happen. And of course, they're all in the trailer. I think almost all the way up to the climax. So if uh, people are interested <laughs> in this particular property, I would encourage you to not actually watch the trailer. Mm-hmm. But the book series is actually quite interesting and They take the high concept premise and spin it on its ear to deliver something a little bit more interesting, particularly as the series goes and they explore the world a little bit more. The first book is very much London, England centered. Oh, cool. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I have not heard anything about it. No, it's it's probably going to bomb hardcore because they have not done a good job of advertising. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you started to describe it, I was like, oh, no, is this going to be another golden compass? Quite possibly, yes. (laughs) But we hope not. We hope it'll be awesome. Yeah, that is all I've got. That's what I'm bringing to the table this week. That's all right. You get a B minus. I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So should we tell folks what we're talking about today? I'm not sure if we did. Yeah, we also need to work out that kink. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks, we're talking about The Perks of Being a Wallflower today, which is by Stephen Chbosky. Published in 99, I believe, uh, the book version. And I think the film, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, 2007? 2012. Oh, see, I was wrong. So we're going to talk about books and films in this podcast. And so we probably need to address the issue of spoilers. I'm totally fine with spoilers. I appreciate that people enjoy a first experience and they want to get a sense of how things unfold without having somebody tell them and potentially ruin it. So if you fall into that category, Brenna and I would strongly encourage you to pause the podcast and go and read a book and then go and watch a movie because we're we're laying it all out on the table. Yeah, it's 
It's just the way we've got to go. It totally, it's hard to have like a thoughtful, in-depth conversation about a text and a film and an adaptation if you're not talking about all the stuff that happens. So yeah, definitely. If spoilers bug you, then uh, stick with us, but read first and listen after. Yeah, and you know, we, we might change that policy a little bit if we're doing something that's extremely contemporary that people maybe haven't seen. Yes, but you've had a while. <laughs> To pick up Perks of Being a Wallflower, particularly the book. Although, as Joe and I said in the intro episode, neither one of us knew it was that old. No. No. All right. So why Perks of Being a Wallflower, Joe? What drew you to this one? Other than the fact that it was on streaming, which is an important criteria for us. It's a helpful criteria. It is. It's true. So I picked this, and this might be a nice, a bit of a segue into the book, so I'll keep it brief, but... I went back and looked at my Goodreads profile to see when I had first read this. And for me, it was only just a couple of years ago. So I checked it out back in January of 2014. Mm-hmm. And I remember it really resonated strongly with me at the time. I had very vivid emotional reactions to it, which for me is one of the defining criteria of YA. And I liked the way that it was structured and the the messaging behind the book really resonated with me because I consider myself a bit of a misfit and I had a bit of a terrible time in high school as well. So yeah, Perks of Being a Wallflower. What an interesting and weird little book. I'll sort of foreground it by saying that it's it's really about abuse and about gendered violence in particular, which I think surprised me because although I read this a few years ago, I 100% did not remember that that is what the book was about. Totally spaced on it. (laughs) Completely, like, which is a big thing to space on. So to start from scratch, the book is uh, narrated by a character named Charlie, or at least he tells us his name is Charlie. Uh, And it's an epistolary novel, which of course is fancy English professor for it's told in a series of letters. Charlie's writing these letters to uh, someone who doesn't know him, who he's heard will be a supportive ear, and that's all we really ever learn about the person. And so over the course of these stories, we hear about Charlie's freshman year. He's showing up at high school with a lot of baggage. His best friend has just committed suicide fairly recently. Forgot about that as well. Yeah. (laughs) And he's not really processing that very well. He's clearly dealing with Everything I read about the book talks about it being a book about depression, but it's important to know that Charlie's having some pretty massive like dissociations and hallucinations along with his experience of depression. So there's a lot going on for Charlie. So much. And he's been hospitalized and he's sort of come out of that hospitalization and dumped into his freshman year of high school, which seems wildly cruel. He's missed enough school that he's older than the other kids in his class. And he spends the first you know, few days and weeks completely alone until he meets a group of seniors who take him under their wing. And the friendship aspect of the story, I think, is is truly the loveliest. And through his friendship with these other characters, particularly a brother and sister duo, he finds his way back to connecting with reality, what he calls participating in the world. So yeah, there's some typical tropey YA characters. There's the teacher who understands him deeply, um, Bill, and the parents who are sort of good but disconnected, the siblings who don't really understand him. But through it all, what makes this an interesting novel, I think, is that Charlie's voice is super unique. I can't think of another book I've read that has a similar voice or tone 
I don't know about you, Joe. Uh, nothing comes to mind. It's a very interesting point of view, if only because it feels like you're struggling to make that connection with Charlie as much as he's struggling to connect with the outside world. Yeah, that's a good point, because everything that he describes is sort of, I don't know how to describe it, except it feels one step removed. Yes. Um, and so just as Charlie can't connect with the people around him, yeah, Joe's exactly right. We can't quite connect with Charlie until all the pieces fall together at the very end of the book. Um, and in the interest of uh, spoiler warnings, <laughs> warning one more time, um, but what we discover is that Charlie has experienced uh, childhood sexual abuse at the hands of his aunt, his favorite aunt, his aunt who died on his birthday, going out to buy him a birthday present. And so obviously Charlie's feelings around this person who had been violated as a child and abused by spouses. Like, really, what the whole book is about is about the reciprocal nature of violence and mistreatment, and primarily gendered violence and mistreatment. One of the lines that comes up frequently in the text is that we accept the love we deserve. Yeah, which is terrible. That's uh, yeah. that's part of the suicide note from his friend Michael, right? Yeah, yeah. And, like, this idea of how we interact with each other and the pain we don't even know we are sort of reflexively recreating from our own experiences. That's, I mean, that's really what the book is about, I would say. It's interesting. I did a casual search on things like Spark Notes and other sites that are meant to help people cram for tests and think about their essay topics. That's a generous phrase for plagiarism, <laughs> says the college English professor. <laughs> yes, well, in their defense, you have to pay a subscription fee to get to the really juicy stuff. <laughs> Jesus. But uh, a, a number of the things that came out when you start to break down the themes was stuff around... Uh, you know, the active participation and his his lack thereof. The different types of role models for growing up, which I thought was interesting. So the, the different types of male figures in his life that he either tries to emulate or stay away from as he's processing, as well as the, the themes of mental health and then also how casual drug use plays into and helps to reveal things about the other thematic pieces oh interesting they don't often go in hard on this idea about violence and molestation you know it's it's almost treated as yes this is something else that's also happening and contributing and it gives you that final payoff twist at the end wow that's really interesting because to me reading it with adult eyes obviously all i see is all of these teens being so deeply and profoundly damaged by the adults in their lives and then each other yeah they they pass on the violence which as we know is very cyclical and it's it's such learned behavior that so many of them particularly unfortunately the women mm -hmm. in this book do accept it and they just roll with it because it's almost as though they expect to be treated this way or mm -hmm. that they they won't be able to find something better. Yeah, that's a huge aspect of it, is this notion of just needing someone to be there, whether that person is any good or not. And, you know, in the book, there's this scene between Charlie's sister and her boyfriend, and her sister, his sister, sorry, is hit by the boyfriend. And before the boyfriend hits her, she's like, 
berates him for being, you know, soft. And then when he hits her, suddenly the relationship, like, she's interested. And it's a very disturbing aspect of what goes on in the text. And Charlie's really quick to tell us, like, my father doesn't hit us, but his father is super distant and unable to sort of address things emotionally. And yeah, there's this huge thread through the text of masculinity and how screwed up football-centered masculinity is, hey? Like a lot of, or sport-centered, right? Because his father's like this failed baseball player and they can't even talk about baseball, which is sort of weird. And then his brother is on the football team and all anybody cares about is what his brother accomplishes on the football field. And there's a, a whole plot line with one of the football players at the high school who is gay but unable to live as openly gay and the sort of pain that he inflicts on other people because he can't because of the pain that his father is inflicting on him for discovering his sexuality like it's just so much pain in this book it's so painful i feel like that's the other thing that i had completely forgotten when i went back and revisited so much of this pain is actually delivered up front as well. Oh, yeah. I was almost keeping a mental checklist as I was going through these first few sections or the, the first few letters that he's sending anonymously to a person that is never revealed. And, you know, it basically opens with, my friend killed himself this summer, I was institutionalized, and then almost immediately it's revealed that his Aunt Helen was killed on... I don't think we find out it was on his birthday until later, but he reveals that she was the most important person in his life. And he tells us that she had a painful life. We don't find out why exactly, but the first thing we learn about her really is this painful life that she led. And it's it's just so much darkness. And then it starts to expand out the more that Charlie makes these connections and it's revealed that everybody is really damaged in their own ways. One of the things that I really enjoy about the book is how these characters manage to overcome and make the best of bad situations. And it's really revealed in some key scenes, like Charlie is revealed to be a great gift giver at a secret Santa because he's paid such close attention to everybody. And there's a sadness to it because it means that he's been so withdrawn that he's actually just watching life pass him by from the margins. So he's been able to see and hear all of these things that other people just miss because they're so busy trying to participate But then the other piece that I really enjoy is how he ends up getting involved in, you know, different kinds of activities like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I love that. Yeah. Like part of what is so great about the novel from the perspective of actual teens reading it during actual teenagehood is that it presents alternative opportunities for connection, you know, in a way that I think is really powerful. Yeah, yeah. So finding these friends from outside your expected friend group and yeah rocky horror as opposed to like anything school sanctioned and the connection that he has with bill which full disclosure once i realized how much molestation was happening in the book i was totally waiting for bill to pull something and when he didn't i was so happy (laughs) yeah and we'll get to that and a little bit more because i want to talk about it in the in the movie as well yes that seems like a good time to segue do you want to talk to folks about the film Absolutely. Okay, so the film came out quite a few years later, and part of that was because it was originally going to be made by somebody else, and then that fell through, and the rights reverted back to Stephen Chomsky, and at that point he had already written his screenplay because it was part of his condition, but then he then jumped in and said, okay, I'd now like to direct this myself. 
So that came out in 2012, and it more or less follows the exact same plot with a couple of changes to try to make it a little bit more cinematic. Dear friend, I haven't really talked to anyone outside of my family all summer, but tomorrow is my first day, and I really want to turn things around this year. You know, they say if you make one friend on your first day, you're doing okay. Hey, freshman toad! Look at him! Come on, hop! Let's do it, boys! If my English teacher's the only friend I make today, that would be sort of depressing. So, Charlie, this is what fun looks like. The island of misfit toys. Do you like football? Love it. Be aggressive! Passive aggressive! What is she doing? Don't worry, she does it all the time. Do you think if people knew how crazy you really were, no one would ever talk to you? Come on. Let's go be psychos together. So what are you going to do when you get out of this place? I really want to be a writer, but I don't know what I'd write about. You could write about us. Call it Slut and the Falcon. Make us solve crimes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Charlie in the film is played by Logan Lerman, who is... I think he's actually a really good casting choice because he disappears into the role. He's, He's quite unassuming, and he's obviously an attractive teenager, but at the same time, they dress him down in such a way that you could completely buy into the idea that he's an introvert. And then mm-hmm. Patrick, the brother of the sister pair, is played by Ezra Miller, who's since gone on to become relatively famous for terrible movies. He plays the Flash in the DC universe, as well as um, he's in the reboot of the Harry Potter franchise. Oh, I didn't know either of those things. This is, this is the film stuff coming in. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Sam, the female pairing of the brother-sister pair, is played by Emma Watson. And this is her first role coming off of the Harry Potter franchise. And I gotta say, she's phenomenal She's my favorite. 100% my favorite. Yeah. So rounding out the cast, we've got the unnamed father is played by Dylan McDermott. The mother is played by Kate Walsh, which floored me because it gave me PTSD back to 13 Reasons Why. <laughs> The sister is given a name in the movie. So many of the characters don't have names because Charlie is trying to keep them anonymous in the book. And the movie actually flips that because I think it would be a little too ridiculous to have Charlie constantly just refer to his sister as sister. Totally. So the sister is played by Nina Dobrev, who became famous for The Vampire Diaries. And then finally, a couple of key adult roles. Paul Rudd is the English teacher. Surprise, Paul Rudd. I had no idea he was in this until I was watching it. Super random. Yeah, so he is referred to only by Mr. Anderson as opposed to Bill in the book. And then filling out the cast is Melanie Linsky as Aunt Helen. And she only really has just a couple of quick, mostly voiceless scenes in flashback. The only addition I'll make to that, Joe, is that Nina Dubrov became famous because of Degrassi, obviously. Ooh. Not because of whatever else you talked Way about. Way to bring back that CanCon. <laughs> <laughs> Always. 
So the film keeps a lot of the same things. We see Charlie writing his letters on occasion, and there is still some voiceover narration, but it's significantly pared down because, of course, watching people write letters is not particularly cinematic. And I'm wondering, how did you feel about the film? You said off the top that you actually preferred the film. So tell me, what did you like about it? I have to say that I found Charlie more persuasive as a real human being in film than I did in the book. I'll agree. I like the voice Chbosky gives him in the book, and I think it's very well done. And as I said, it's a unique voice, but I believed him as a person in the movie. And so for me, that changed my relationship to the text a lot. I think that's why I feel like on a surface level, I preferred it. There are definitely some things that really annoyed me that I'll save till we talk about the adaptation. I don't know the actor who plays the main character. Like I don't think I've seen him in anything else, but I really thought he was a very good Charlie and that Charlie on screen was rounded surprisingly in a way that Charlie in the book isn't, which is usually the opposite of what you find with adaptation. It's an interesting perspective. I think if nothing else, a film should afford characters more opportunities to open up. And I think that Lerman does a really good job of finding the nuance elements that make Charlie Charlie and force him to withdraw and the you know the way that he is constantly staring at people and Chopsky does a really good job of framing that so that he's often isolated or just caught looking at people i think the thing for me and this sounds so bitchy he doesn't cry in the movie he only cries once yeah. whereas in the book at the end i think he cries nearly every single day like he cries at everything Anything that's particularly yeah. moving, anything that you know causes him pain, he's just constantly bursting out into tears, which people suffer through because it's what makes Charlie Charlie. But as a film, that would not have worked. No, I agree. And I think it's interesting because one of the emotional struggles that he has in the book is this idea of, does he cry so much that his tears are valueless, right? It's like a question that he asks himself, like by crying so much, does he render the things that have really moved him pointless because he cries about everything and so he's like on this challenge to stop himself from crying and you're right we don't see that same kind of emotional wrestling or restraint with charlie in the film version an interesting thing though is they they do seem to supplement the lack of interior i don't want to call it conflict i don't really know what else to say what else to call it i think it it ends up getting transposed onto increased violence and mockery at the school like high school in the film is depicted as a complete hellhole for him which is something that we get referenced to in the book but it's never as explicitly laid out no i definitely felt like in the book the issue is more that he is absent from the world of the high school whereas he's definitely a target of bullies in the film version Mm mm-hmm So one of the things, and I I feel like I tipped my hat a little bit too early when we were talking about the book, but one of the pieces that worked just exceedingly well for me in the movie was the sequence when Charlie has to step into the role of Rocky in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So in both the book and the film, they're obviously doing these live shadow casts, which are the height of participation. The moment when... he steps into the role of Rocky in the film, it's depicted almost like a montage and it's just carried by the music and some really smart editing and some really uncomfortable scenes of uh, (laughs) Emma Watson getting her breasts touched. (laughs) But uh, there's, there's so much 
power and emotion in that scene like the film had done a really good job of capturing that breakthrough moment because there were I can't imagine something worse for someone who's timid and uncomfortable with being in the spotlight than having to step up into a role that literally requires you to be front and center and basically naked you know all but right and so like in this sort of emotional vulnerability kind of metaphor he's disrobed on the stage and it's interesting because that scene was the scene that I was expecting to be like, oh my God, Hermione, no. <laughs> um, but I never felt that way. And I wonder if it's because I watched it so many years removed from the Harry Potter series, which full disclosure, I never finished watching the films of. Oh, but the last one was really good. <laughs> That's what people tell me. I, I sort of stopped with the movies at four um, and never picked them back up again. So I, I wonder if I'm just not invested in her in as that character in the same way, or if it's just that she's so good. There was not a trace of Hermione about the character. It was a really savvy choice for her as her first film choice coming out of Harry Potter, I think. It's not even the Disney princess escape route where these girls who have grown up as Hannah Montana and so on have to try to break out of that mode. Instead, this just seems like it's a logical step into a more real slightly more adult role but Mm -hmm. one that really has a lot of the things that emma watson has gone on to Mm -hmm. which are kind of like meaty complicated interesting women who have something to say but they're not perfect one thing that i have to say i didn't love or that i just wished had been different is that i felt like in the book sam is really explicit about her boundaries with charlie like she tells him from the beginning don't have a crush on me like don't be into me this isn't a relationship that's going to happen and in the film she doesn't does she even say it at all because i felt like i was waiting for it and it never came it never came so i felt like it added a layer of manic pixie dream girl to sam that is aggressively not in the book i feel like sam is someone who helps charlie to grow but doesn't exist for the exclusive purpose of charlie's growth whereas sam in the film in some ways does only exist for Charlie's growth in ways that were disappointing to me. Like I'm thinking particularly of the kiss that they share at the very end of the film. I felt like that was really out of character for Sam if the Sam of the book had been realized on screen. Does that make sense? A hundred percent, because I was actually thinking of that as well. And part of it, I think, is as much as I appreciate the way that Charlie's LSD breakdown is filmed, I think it's actually one of the strongest cinematic components of the film. It's also intercut with him saying goodbye to Sam and the way that that particular little bit where he leans into the truck and kisses her they look so familiar that it makes it seem like they're dating or that they're going to be dating long distance and really I think we're now merging into the adaptation section Um, to me it's 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 one of the things that doesn't work about the film. Mm-hmm. You're 100% right that she's too often presented as an object and not a person. Yep. Despite Emma Watson's fantastic portrayal, it's an error or a weakness of the film that it always just presents her as the love interest. Which I find really odd because Chbosky in the book is so careful about Sam's depiction. I feel like even through Charlie's eyes, because... Often in an epistolary novel like this, you can't really trust the narrator, right? Like the narrator's perspective is going to be deeply skewed. And that's certainly true of lots of things in the book. But never do we see Sam as a single dimensional character. Like part of what is Charlie's gift is seeing people 
as they really are, like seeing people as whole people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm surprised, given that Chbosky wrote the screenplay, that Sam becomes something so much less complex and less interesting and less I found I felt like less honest and truthful like one of the things that's beautiful about Sam is that she is so aware of her boundaries and the boundaries that will be healthy and helpful for Charlie in a way that she we know that she has been violated as a child and we know that Charlie has been violated as a child and in a lot of ways Sam's the first person to ever set appropriate boundaries around affection for Charlie without just withholding affection entirely. Like, I think that's what makes her such an important character in the book. So I was disappointed that she didn't do that in the film. I do wonder if there's more to it, if there if there was a decision that Chabosky made in between the book and the film. But there's definitely a ramping up of the sexual nature between the two like it's it's explicit because it has to be made apparent because we don't have we're not privy to all of charlie's letter entries right but the other sort of significant change that i think was made to sam is she's explicitly labeled a slut in the film and that's not something that happens in the book there's there's no indication that sam is sexually promiscuous or even that she has bad taste in men it's just you know, Craig turns out to be a huge asshole. Mm-hmm. But in the film, it's early on, like the the introduction at the diner, Patrick literally calls her a slut as her moniker. Write mm-hmm. a story about us. She's the slut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was yeah. that was perturbing. <laughs> well, yeah, it was. And again, I find it, you know, that's the kind of thing that you would not expect the same person to have created both of these characters. You know what I mean? Like it very much felt like a intention shift in the adaptation i mean it's just such a unique situation anyway to have the author as the play as the screenwriter as well right it's really unprecedented and i can't even think of another example no exactly and so i think all of these things that i usually just attribute to the screenwriter sucking i have to like really think hard about here because these are his characters right like and so when he makes these choices especially around sam i just don't know i don't understand Can I talk about one thing in the adaptation that pissed me off? Yes, because I have one thing as well. (laughs) (laughs) I, oh my God. So in the book, Candace, Charlie's sister, gets pregnant by her asshole boyfriend and she gets an abortion and Charlie is the one who takes her. And it's this huge moment of growth for Charlie because he's being relied upon for like the first time in his life. And he has an emotional breakdown in the middle of it, but he makes it through. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's huge for their relationship. It's enormous for their relationship. I mean, there's a moment in every sibling relationship where you start to relate to each other as adults as opposed to sort of kids, Mm -hmm. right? And for them, it's that moment. And it's gone from the movie. And we all know why it's gone from the movie because Americans lose their shit about (laughs) abortion scenes. They cannot handle them. And it's just so frustrating to me. It reminded me of watching Juno in the theater and getting so annoyed when it's the issue of whether or not June is going to keep the baby gets summed up with, oh, abortion schmushmorshman? Like, are you kidding? Like, a grown adult wrote this movie? That's how I refer to it all the time. <laughs> schmushmorshman. And it, you know, I guess around the time that this film came out, if it was 2012, if I'm not mistaken, we're only a few years out at that point from 
when the N around 2009, I guess, I don't even think that's a network anymore, um, but it made the big controversial decision to actually show the Degrassi abortion episodes. Oh, like, really? Oh, my God. Because for years and years and years, those episodes never aired. So the episode of Degrassi from the original series that aired on PBS, when the characters go into the abortion clinic, it just it cuts right before they go in. <laughs> It's just, she's just not pregnant anymore, but nobody ever made a decision about it. That and sounds so confusing. Ask us no further questions, right? And I, I'm so fascinated by this aspect of American culture, not the pro-life aspect. I understand the religious arguments against abortion, but the inability to have a conversation about it and the anxiety and just a complete absence of discussion of it in YA movies and TV. To me, it was just such a massive absence from the film because as a result of not having that scene, you never really get why Candace and Charlie's relationship changes. It's just like, oh, he's in hospital at the end of the book and his sister comes. Like, cool, right? But I don't know. It's just such this important moment of growth for him, an important moment of growth for them. And I always think it's really important to see depictions of abortion that don't end in tragedy or a life of regret. And that's what Chbosky gives us in the book, which is pretty rare from a male author of YA. They normally steer away from it entirely. I don't know. I just, it pissed me off so much to see that scene gone, even though the whole time I was watching it, I was waiting for it to not be there because I knew it wouldn't be because Americans can't cope with abortion. Uh, It's very disappointing. I mean, I think it speaks to some of the struggles that we've seen in the characters who aren't Charlie. I'm sure you could make the argument that it's about the ebb and the flow, the way that the the film is trying to strike this tricky tone between pathos and comedy and coming of age. And maybe that was just one plotline too many, and they had to cut it for time. I imagine it's probably a little bit of all of the above. But it does also segue, and now my point seems so much less integral, but (laughs) it does play along the same lines, which is the absence of the grandfather. Oh yeah. I didn't even notice that. Well, I was going to say, I didn't really remember the the abortion piece either (laughs) until she shows up at the end to call the cops because Charlie calls her when he's having his breakdown right before he has to be institutionalized. Which makes zero sense. Which makes no sense at all. They have no relationship. Nope. To be honest, I had completely forgotten about Candace and all of a sudden (laughs) I was like, why is he calling this chick at a pool party? Oh, right, that's his sister. Um, But it, it does speak to me that the focus is so much more on Sam and to a slightly lesser extent Patrick in the film that we really lose a lot of the meaty, contextual, challenging bits that are the family dynamic in the book. So we don't have the grandfather. To be honest, I think Aunt Helen also gets the shift, which to me underplays the revelation that he was molested by her. And because we don't have the grandfather, we don't get that additional cyclical piece, which is that she was also abused. Yes, what never comes across in the film is how deep that relationship with Aunt Helen is. Not at all. It makes it seem like she died on his birthday and that traumatized him. What is so important about the way that story is built in the book is that I mean, what is what tortures Charlie is this conflict between this person causing him immense harm and also being one of the few people who ever shows him love, mm-hmm. right? Like, Jesus, that's huge and heavy, and it never comes across in the film. 
And it's all about his burgeoning sexuality, which is, of course, a huge component of any YA book, but particularly in this one, because it's kind of the ultimate form of participation. It's opening up yourself in that vulnerable state and being willing to take off your clothes and go to that next level of intimacy, which is why I think in the book it's handled so well, because it's a moment that happens with Sam, which is when you think things should be working out perfectly, and instead it just unleashes the floodgates of this horrible traumatic repressed memories and in the the movie it lands almost with a thud like the scene where he has his breakdown where you see him walking down the road and then he doubles and then he triples and the camera goes askew and he looks like he's hyperventilating i think that's handled so well but it doesn't have an emotional backing so it really loses a lot of the impact that it would have had or that it does have in the book yeah i agree with all of that completely so that was, that was my main issue. Totally agree. I think those are some pretty fundamental problems. But if you look at the film as a film, mm-hmm. I think it works quite well. I agree completely. If I hadn't known about that relationship between them as siblings, I wouldn't have been looking for it in the film at all. Because just speaking on the level of tropes, siblings so rarely enter into YA texts in a meaningful way. Yeah, unless the book is about a sibling relationship. Exactly. And usually then one of them's dead. <laughs> God. <laughs> the things to look forward to. Hey, that sort of segues neatly into our YA bingo concept. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Yeah, so what pray tell is a YA bingo? So I messaged Joe when I finished watching the film, and I was like, YA bingo, random Joan Cusack sighting. Oh my god, <laughs> that was such a delightful way to end the film. So true. And then I was like, YA bingo, abortion excision, which poor choice of words, Brenna, but here we are. So we, we started sharing back and forth like things that you just typically see in YA text. So we thought we might uh, wrap up by sharing some of our YA bingos from this one. And so those are my two big ones. Surprise, except not surprise at all. They cut the abortion scene and Joan Cusack showed up. Which I'll be honest, I was not expecting that to be <laughs> enough of a bingo card. <laughs> My contribution would be a secondary queer subplot, Mm. which is the whole Patrick and Brad relationship, which is handled well, but it also is very familiar. Yes. Which maybe if we look at both the book and the film being set in 1992, it does have a lot more impact. But looking at it as a film from 2012, I was like, boring. But (laughs) I mean, Ezra Miller is quite entertaining. He's, he's lovely to watch, but the plotline itself is not great. And the only other one I would add then is what I'm fondly calling parents just don't understand, which is going to be in every single text we talk about, unless we have dead parents. <laughs> they just don't get it. <laughs> and then we've got a touch of our, our manic pixie dream girl. Yes, I'm sure we'll be seeing lots more of that. Possibly even next week. What are we talking about next week, Joe? What are we talking about? So I guess that's a wrap on the perks of being a wallflower. Yay, as a good first pick, it's a it's a good way to start it off. Super a lot to talk about. That's what I loved about it. Like I knew as I was reading and watching it that we would have more than enough to fill our time. Wait until we get to that goosebumps week. <laughs> it's just Joe talking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And Brenna is under the couch. <laughs> Uh, Okay, so we are going to continue the train next week. We're going to switch genres, but we're going to stick with white male authors. they're the only ones that matter. Obviously. (laughs) So we are going to detour and we're going to look at warm bodies. So excited. 
which is a zombie rom-com. I remember loving this film, just being so shocked by how much it delighted me. So I'm really excited to read the book, which I never have before. And I'm nervous to go back and watch the film again. Yes, from what I remember, there's some pretty significant differences between the two. So I'm interested because I, again, only remember little bits and pieces too. So so it's 2010's Warm Bodies by Isaac Marion and then the 2013 film adaptation by Jonathan Levine. And if you want to talk with us, argue with us, shout at us, or heap praise upon us, you can find us on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And my Twitter handle is at B stole my remote. That's B as in the letter B stole my remote. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. It really helps us to get the word out and helps other people to find it. And you can always chat about this podcast using the hashtag HKHSPod. We'll be checking in and seeing what people have to say. Fantastic. All right. So thanks so much for joining us. And until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I'll see you on the screen.